Uh, good afternoon. I think it's time for us to get going. Uh, I'll start by introducing myself. I'm Ben Woldovsky, a senior fellow at the Kaufman Foundation and uh, also a visiting fellow just up the street at the Brookings Institution. Uh, I'd like to welcome all of you to Cato, to the Cato Institute and to today's panel discussion, Markets versus Standards, Debating the Future of American Education. Today's discussion takes place almost exactly 25 years after the release of A Nation at Risk, the landmark report of the National Commission on Excellence in Education. I think it's fair to say that the report is remembered much less for its specific policy recommendations than for the urgency of its battle cry, its declaration that something had gone badly wrong with American education. Even those of us who were very, very young when the report came out uh, may recall hearing about the rising tide of mediocrity that was said to threaten the educational foundations of, the, of our society. And then, of course, there was this famously stark claim, quote, if an unfriendly foreign power had attempted to impose on America the mediocre educational performance that exists today, we might well have viewed it as an act of war. As it stands, we have allowed this to happen to ourselves. So if a nation at risk galvanized school reformers, what exactly have we done to fix American education since then? One could answer that question many ways, and in fact, there is a debate on the legacy of a nation at risk currently taking place at the uh, Cato Institute's online forum, Cato Unbound. Broadly speaking, as uh, the invitation to today's discussion suggested, U.S. education reform in the past quarter century has centered around two philosophies of school improvement, standards and accountability on the one hand, and school choice on the other. In the first category, we've seen such landmark events as the Governor's Summit in Charlottesville in 1989, which many view as the catalyst for the standards-based reform movement that swept the states with bipartisan support in the 1990s. That movement, which at its best required schools to use rigorous curricula and then measured schools, students' academic progress with high-quality tests, created the momentum for accountability that helped lead to the passage seven years ago of the No Child Left Behind Act. On the choice side, we've seen the gradual establishment of several school voucher programs in Milwaukee, in Cleveland, for a time in Florida, and more recently in Washington, D.C. There was also a Supreme Court decision upholding the legality of vouchers in religious schools. And along the way, there was also the publication in 1990 of what, at least in recent years, has been seen as the movement's seminal text, John Chubb and Terry Moe's Politics, Markets, and America's Schools, published by the Brookings Institution, no less. The book went so far as to call school choice a panacea for all that ails American education. These two schools of thought have coexisted over the years, mostly peacefully. After all, many would contend that nobody need choose between choice and standards, that both are important components of school reform. As they used to say on the old Saturday Night Live skit, it's a floor polish and a dessert topping. I think I'm, I'm probably the only one old enough to remember that. Uh, indeed, one of the most visible reforms on the education scene today, the charter movement, could be viewed as a hybrid of choice and standards, in which a new breed of public schools is given considerable autonomy in exchange for a promise to meet certain performance standards. But this uneasy truce, as choice advocate Jay Green of the University of Arkansas calls it, was recently shattered by an article Saul Stern wrote recently for the Manhattan Institute City Journal. I'm sure Saul Stern can do more justice to his own arguments than I can, so I won't go into detail in this introduction. But in essence, he contended that despite being a longtime supporter of school choice, 
he has reluctantly concluded that the facts on the ground show that school choice hasn't worked nearly as well as advertised. He wrote, among other things, that vouchers have hit a wall, but they simply haven't spread very widely, and despite some academic benefits for kids receiving vouchers, haven't given the competitive boost to public schools that supporters once promised. In contrast to the disappointing results of this so-called incentivist approach, he wrote, instructivists, reformers who are more focused on curriculum and pedagogy along with demanding tests, have a much better record of improving student achievement. This article caused a real hubbub in the blogosphere and beyond. The Weekly Standard, for, for, uh, for instance, uh, jokingly referred to Stern's piece as apostasy in the school reform movement. And this is why we're here today. We have a really terrific panel of experts to discuss the ins and outs of incentivism and, and instructivism, beginning with Saul Stern himself, who will be followed by John Merrifield, then by Gary Huggins, and then by Andrew Colson of Cato. I'm going to briefly tell you about our panelists before we start. Uh, Saul Stern is a contributing editor to City Journal and also a Manhattan Institute senior fellow. He writes frequently and passionately on education reform, uh, including a lot of writing on New York City. He is the author of the newly released book, Breaking Free, Public School Lessons and the Imperative of School Choice. And aside from his work in City Journal, he's written in many other places, including the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times Magazine, Commentary, and, and many more. Uh, actually, one of the most interesting uh, things on his bio, which probably is worthy of a whole separate panel, is the fact that he began his journalism career at Ramparts, uh, the, uh, the uh, famous or infamous uh, magazine or uh, newspaper uh, in the Bay Area in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, then on my right, uh, far right here, is Dr. John Merrifield, who is a member of the economics faculty at the University of Texas at San Antonio. He's also a senior research fellow of the Education Policy Institute and the Sutherland Institute. He has written a, a number of books, including The School Choice Wars, School Choices, Parental Choices and Education Reform Catalyst, and many articles and book chapters. Uh, his latest publication is a Cato Policy Analysis, which is called Dismal Science, the Shortcomings of School Choice Research and How to Address Them, which, by a happy coincidence, is being released today and is available outside the auditorium. Now, Gary Huggins, uh, over here on my far left, is the director of the Commission on No Child Left Behind, a bipartisan independent effort dedicated to improving the No Child Left Behind Act, which I should mention is uh, in, in small part funded uh, by uh, the Kauffman Foundation, my own foundation. Uh, Gary has more than 15 years of experience in leading education and environmental policy organizations. Um, he, just before joining the commission, he was the executive director of the Education Leaders Council and also the Education Leaders Action Council. And before that, he was executive, executive director of the CSCV, which is a coalition of corporations, small businesses, consumer and environmental groups that promoted market-based environmental solutions. Finally, to my immediate right is Andrew Colson, who is the director of Cato's Center for Educational, Educational Freedom. He is the author of the book, the 1999 book, Market Education, The Unknown History, and he's also a contributor to books published by the Fraser Institute and the Hoover Institution. He has also written for many academic journals and many newspapers, including the Wall Street Journal, the Detroit Free Press, and more. And uh, he was previously a senior fellow in education policy at the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Um, he also, I see from the, his bio, before getting into the field of education, was a systems software engineer for Microsoft. Now, without further ado, we're going to proceed to have each panelist speak for 10 minutes. Uh, we're going to try to observe the limit very strictly. And after that, I'm going to lead off the discussion with one or two questions of my own. 
and then uh, we'll open it up to questions from the audience. So, uh, so all over to you. Thank you. Okay, it's really nice to be here in this uh, beautiful building, my first time. Perhaps uh, Cato can send the, your architect down to, uh, or up to New York City so uh, we can benefit at Manhattan Institute. Anyway, uh, I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm glad to be here and uh, to finally meet the uh, folks at Cato who have been saying so many nice things about me for the past few months. Uh, I'm joking, of course. I can, I can take the heat, as uh, Ben pointed out. I started out at Ramparts. Uh, Still, I, I really have to say that some of the attacks completely dumbfounded me. For example, I was called both a tool of the neoconservatives and a hack for the teachers' unions. Now, that's surely a first. And for the life of me, I can't understand why so many of my critics keep insisting that I've abandoned school choice or that, as one person at Cato said, I had smeared the school choice movement. To see how silly this is, all you have to do is look at the title of my City Journal article that caused all this tumult. The title is School Choice Isn't Enough. Not school choice is bad. Not that the school choice movement should go out of business. All I say is that the voucher experiment isn't exactly sweeping the country and that it hasn't had the competitive effects on the public schools we once believed would naturally occur. That's why, in my view... School choice supporters should diversify their investments, so to speak. We should be looking at promising curriculum and instructional reform strategies that could contribute to the goal that I assume we all still share, which is that we want to see student achievement lifted. Contrary to the absurd charge that I smeared school choice, I actually praised this choice movement rather effusively for what it had already accomplished. And here's what I wrote. It is clear that the school choice movement has been very good for the disadvantaged. Public and privately funded voucher programs have liberated hundreds of thousands of poor minority children from failing public schools. The movement has also reshaped the education debate. But despite the fact that there's still a strong moral argument for choice, the movement has to honestly face certain facts on the ground and lower the completely unrealistic expectations that choice and market-based reforms are going to bring about significant improvement for the 50 million children that, for better or worse, will remain in the country's public schools. In my article, I built my argument around three main sets of facts that I believe remain incontrovertible. First, there's a grim political reality that the school choice movement has now lost eight or nine straight state referendums on voucher proposals, the most recent in conservative Utah. Now, you can try to explain it away or with tales of how the choice forces were outspent by the teachers' unions. That's all true. But the fact is that school choice keeps losing in the only poll that really counts, the ballot box. Moreover, full-fledged voucher programs in the cities have hardly advanced much since the 2003 Zellman decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. Everyone in the school choice movement was confident at the time that this would be the Magna Carta for school choice, particularly in the cities. But it hasn't worked out that way. 
Except for the small DC program, vouchers haven't expanded in the cities. Moreover, one of the few existing school choice programs in Florida has already been closed down by the state courts. And second, there's a tragic crisis of the nation's inner city Catholic schools. And that's not going to be wished away either. The strategic premise behind voucher programs in the inner cities was that there would be a sufficient number of Catholic schools that could accommodate a large number of students transferring from the public schools. Unfortunately, these hopes are being dashed by what what appears to be the long death rattle of the urban Catholic schools. As I said in my article, the crisis is so severe that we have even seen closings of Catholic schools in Milwaukee and right here in Washington, D.C., that were benefiting from enrolling voucher students. Just a few days ago, a report on the Catholic schools crisis by the Fordham Foundation amplified this point and provided more evidence of the decline of Catholic schools in the voucher cities of Milwaukee and Washington, D.C. Finally, my most important point was about Milwaukee. This was the one that caused so many choice supporters to go ballistic. There's not much evidence to support the theory that vouchers in Milwaukee are having a a positive competitive effect on the city's public schools. I certainly regret this, and when I started out and visited uh, Milwaukee, I assumed that there would be this, this effect. But Milwaukee's public schools still suffer from low achievement and miserable graduation rates, with test scores flattening in recent years. Most voucher students still seem to be benefiting, but no Milwaukee miracle, no transformation of the public schools has taken place. The three studies that have been cited by the voucher program supporters as showing slight gains for Milwaukee public school students only considered data uh, for the two years after 1998 when the uh, Milwaukee program expanded. As I pointed out in my article, one of the Milwaukee voucher program's founders, African-American educator Howard Fuller, recently said, and I quote, I think that any honest assessment would have to say that there hasn't been the deep wholesale improvement in Milwaukee public schools that we would have thought. And I want to congratulate uh, Mr. Fuller for his candor, because there's a lot of pressure in the movement to not admit the facts. A recent Wall Street Journal editorial went after me on this point. It claimed that a 2007 study of the voucher program by Martin Carnoy and five other researchers did show gains for the public school students, and that I had ignored the study. In fact, the journal got it completely wrong. The Carnoy study said explicitly, and I quote, we find essentially no evidence that students in those traditional public schools in Milwaukee facing more competition achieve higher test score gains. But I, I have to now report that the situation for Milwaukee public school students is worse than even the Carnoy study suggests. New evidence from the federal NAEP tests seem to show that black Milwaukee public school students actually score among the lowest of any cohort of black students in the country in fourth and eighth grade reading and eighth grade writing. How do we know this? Because the 2007 NAEP tests in those grades showed that Wisconsin had the lowest scoring black students in the country. 
Since close to 60% of all the state students are in the Milwaukee public schools, that is 60% of all the state's black students are, are in the Milwaukee public schools, we can extrapolate. Because the black students in Wisconsin's other urban districts, such as Racine and Madison, are not performing much worse than black Milwaukee students on the state tests, the inescapable conclusion is that Milwaukee black students are scoring at or near the bottom of the nation in reading and writing. And that's 20 years after the voucher program that was supposed to lift all boats. Milwaukee represents the most expansive school choice program tried in any urban district in the country. I supported the voucher experiment, and I still do, but it does no good for the choice movement to go into denial about this failure to affect the public schools. Nor should we accept the excuse that there are no perfect market, market conditions for real choice in Milwaukee. Of course that's true, but it's also irrelevant to the argument, since there will never be perfect market conditions for school choice. Instead of reaching for straws or waiting for market utopia, we might consider whether there are programs that are actually working and improving student outcomes and not worry whether these reforms were initiated by horror of horrors, the government. Our only question should be whether the reforms actually work to raise student achievement. My article described one such government-induced reforms in the state of Massachusetts, where there actually was a miracle. Massachusetts shot up, up above every other state in the country in the NAEP tests, and it was largely due to standards imposed by the State Board of Education, better preparation of teachers, and curriculum reform. But here's another reform, very close to here, that is working spectacularly and has actually been started by the federal government. It's an amazing story that hasn't been adequately covered in the press. And so far, unfortunately, it has been... My time's up? Wow. Let me just finish. Anyway, you have these. Everyone has a, uh, a graph, uh, and, and it's a comparison of, of scores on the SOL test. That's not, you know, I don't own the test. It stands for uh, Standards of Learning, Virginia test, between Richmond, a poor, uh, underfunded district, and Fairfax, one of, uh, Fairfax, one of the richest uh, uh, school districts in the country. And what you can see, first of all, since 2000, Richmond, which has started out at about uh, 120th out of about 140 Richmond, uh, Virginia districts, has shot up near the top. And they're already surpassing both white students and black students in Fairfax County. And that's also, like Massachusetts, it's the result of curriculum and pedagogical reforms undertaken by the uh, district administration. So I find it disturbing that people in the choice movement are indifferent to instructional programs that have succeeded in places like Massachusetts and Richmond on the grounds that such, such reforms are government-induced. <clears throat> Apparently, they'd rather wait for market utopia than get into the fray of actually supporting programs that work in the classroom and could improve outcomes for millions of disadvantaged children. I urge everyone in that school choice movement sort of come in off the sidelines, support school choice, 
but also support uh, situations in which significant achievements, significant uh, improvement can be uh, achieved by instructional and pedagogy and uh, curriculum reforms. Thank you. Since you have a copy of my remarks, let me just depart from them from the beginning a little bit just to address some of Saul's points. Uh, he cited some political reality issues, all the voucher programs that we've, that we've lost, and frankly some of them were wor well worth losing, uh, given that, that they probably would have done further damage to the cause by creating more things to hype that are semi-irrelevant. But beyond that, let's not take this too far and, and tarnish what could be a good concept that we may pursue by other means just by the fact that some means to pursue it have, have not worked yet. So let's, let's keep that uh, door open. You mentioned the Catholic uh, school capacity issue. Neither the makeup of the current private system, which is still probably about 50% Catholic, nor how many empty seats are in it has much of anything to do with the prospects for school choice uh, if we implement it in, in something close to a market-friendly form because people know how to pour concrete and buy buildings and expand the openings, and certainly that's what would happen. Uh, Milwaukee, I agree with what he said. Uh, the, the, the people in it have been benefited. The public schools seem to have responded a little bit, but the program in its current form is, is no reform catalyst. Uh, what we need, uh, we need to recognize that, and just because it's the best program out there doesn't mean that we should recognize it as evidence for, for what does or does not work. And last but not least, uh, coincidentally, I looked at the Massachusetts NAEP scores, or Neil did for me, uh, when I got here today. And indeed, they are a lot better, uh, which is kind of a two-edged sword. We're, we're getting excited by the fact that somebody's managed to get half of us above basic, which is the eighth grade uh, results for math, and 43% uh, above basic for uh, eighth grade reading. And of course, we all know that the results get worse when you get further down the road to 12th grade. Uh, those results, unfortunately, were not available. So just to put some context on it, I'm not, uh, I'm not down on what's going on in Massachusetts. It's great. I'm for anything that helps the kids immediately, as long as it doesn't foreclose what might happen in the future uh, long term that might benefit more of them by a larger amount. So now I think you can uh, flip to my pages there, and you can scribble some notes in the margin, and I'll just kind of comment on what it says there. Uh, one of the things we're talking about here is whether we should pursue choice with market accountability or sort of give up on it a little bit, saying, ah, you know, we've lost all these battles. It's not going to happen. So let's uh, focus some of our energies elsewhere. By, by when I say partially give up, I'm saying, you know, resources are, are limited. You know, you just can't do everything, and if you do more of something, you're doing less of something else as a result. Uh, I would argue that if we were to move closer to a situation where we have some real market accountability, not necessarily perfection, that we would get performance standards and they wouldn't be static standards written into law, but dynamic standards that the market would continue to push and that indeed codification, political codification of standards is perhaps a plus in the short term, but in the long run they become a floor and not a, and not a I'm sorry, a ceiling and a limit on what can be done rather than, than uh, than the standard of what should be done. Uh, I would go so far to argue that true choice probably is a panacea. Now, whether we're going to get there or not or anytime soon, I don't know. It's certainly too soon to say that we're not going to get there or that it's not a panacea if we, if we get there. We, we don't have a modern example, so it's too soon to say, forget about it, let's give up on it. Again, there are limited resources, so if we, if we 
pr provide resources to some other approach. We'll do less on that. Is it a gamble to do any of these things? And we're here talking about nation at risk. I would argue in such a situation it's hard to take a gamble uh, when you're pretty much at rock bottom. Uh, again, some places are better than others. I hear that term a lot, but I would argue that, that the fundamentals are about the same everywhere, so just about all of them could be an awful lot better for $10,000-plus per student per year. Or Andrew was quoted recently on Rush as having found that it's $25,000 per student per year here in, uh, in D.C., which is, I hadn't heard that number before. That's just truly mind-boggling that there's a million dollars sitting in a classroom where a teacher is being paid fifty or $60,000. Where is the rest of it? Uh, we've got to figure out a way to, to do better than that, and, and unfortunately the system is shown to be quite resistant. I'm not sure we're going to do it through, through more government intervention other than to say, oops, we can't get it right. Let's open it up the system. Let's let the price system harness some knowledge and send out some information and, and do what the rest of the market does automatically. Uh, we're still on my second page there where it says here was what true choice is all about. Rather than read all of it, since I've spent some time on some other things, let me just have you look at that, which some of you have already done, and, and wonder out loud if that resembles any system you've seen lately. Uh, entrepreneurial initiative, harnessing knowledge, price system in action, and letting the footloose clients do the regulating rather than some bureau codifying. And again, see, that, that's a big trust issue. I run into that a lot, is we just don't trust the market to get it done. I want it in writing. I want it to be a law. Well, we know cynically that often hope triumphs over experience and that putting something into writing produces the opposite of the intended result. Uh, true choice may not be a panacea, but it is the essential reform. It's really the only thing we haven't tried yet in 50 laboratories of democracy in some form or another. We've tried all of these things. And I do applaud what's going on in Massachusetts. I hope that somebody else replicates it. I hope that they, folks at least in Massachusetts sustain it. History is not very kind on that regard, though. I'm, Countless situations where I've read, well, look what so-and-so is doing at this school. It's like a couple years later. What happened to it? They quit. They changed superintendents. They changed principals. It went away. And even while it was going on, nobody else thought to copy it. Uh, so, again, I hope that doesn't happen in Massachusetts, but uh, history shows that that might be the result. Uh, we have some examples in the past we could study. Uh, you know, Andrew's book. It's a good start for that. We have some, uh, uh, we have some patterns, as Andrew will probably mention in his uh, talk, we can look at to show that, that if we, even if we don't move all the way to something that would resemble market accountability, profits, dynamic price system, free entry and exit, if we don't get all of the way there, getting part of the way there uh, will probably do considerable good. So at least in that regard, we should uh, continue to push hard on that front. Is education different? Is it one of those weird sectors, if there is one, where the market isn't going to work? I don't see anything in there. And if, if anything, other than maybe some help through tax credits or, or vouchers to make sure that there's a high minimum level of accessibility, I see the education sector, a service, uh, is all the more necessary to have a market in action because of all of the diversity in terms of educators and students so that we need niches and we need specialization. And that's probably something we'll never see through the political process. That being said, I appreciate what Sal's doing. And Michael Petrilli, former assistant secretary of education, two years ago, or actually three years ago now, and the gadfly said basically the same thing. And I admire their work, and I hope that what they're doing, intentionally or not, uh, is creating a firestorm that will keep us debating this topic over and over again. 
and to give us a realistic view of what's going on out there in terms of our existing programs. They're rescue operations. They're not markets in action. There's, of course, there's a little bit out there in the way of choice and rivalry, but that's just a, su- a necessary condition, not nearly a sufficient condition to, to, to test markets in action. So, again, I think, I think it's great uh, because... You know, there are a lot of people that were concluding this anyway. Let's, we've got it out in the open now in the Wall Street Journal and in the City Journal. Uh, let's, let's hope that we get a lot more discussion of this issue as a result of this. Uh, I'm cheap to, to have show up at these. Uh, I hope that uh, some of you write for the Journal of School Choice and we get it in my journal as a result as well. Uh, ah, I'm down to two minutes, okay, which is good because I'm, I'm flying along. Uh, one thing that I'm, that I'm glad that I didn't run out of time to get to was, I forgot to number my slides, but it says public school reform is the wrong measure of success. Uh, if I could groan and roll my eyes at the same time, let's see. Uh, uh, can't do that very well. It's hard to, hard to get the brain. I hear that so often, and, and my, I have two reactions that you can see on the page there. First of all, we haven't actually put them under any kind of competitive heat so far. The various voucher programs put the private schools under a significant disadvantage. There generally are no prices. There's often no allowance for explicitly or implicitly for profit making. Uh, and second of all, that's just it's just totally the wrong measure of success in any endeavor as to whether the incumbent cleans up their act and gets better. Now, we'd still have IBM, Sears, and AT&T running their respective industries if that was the standard. Those industries have, have, have done great things, even though those incumbent big firms have been largely replaced rather than improved. And that's something we need to allow for, too. So we need to believe in the power of freedom to reform the school system, not believe in the power of competition to change the public school system, because that might happen, but it might not. Public school system isn't a firm. They're not trying to make profits. They're often insulated from changes. Public educators have often not had to change, and so they have not. Uh, People don't like change. So... Again, I'm all for standards, but I think the market will do a better job of, of producing dynamic standards and better ones if we, if we allow that. So in the meantime, let's pursue the political route and see what we can do. Uh, I've always believed in a two-track policy where uh, you do the best you can within current constraints, and then you figure out what the cost of the constraints in are and which one of them are most important to uh, relax and eliminate. And Neil's got the sign up that says we're out of time, so I've got a couple slides that you'll have to go there. Last but not least, let's keep the feds out of the classroom. Neil's, Neil's uh, writing will give you, fill you the details on that. Let's keep the feds focused on collecting data and doing studies and keep the 50 laboratories of democracy doing whatever they can. It's a perfect introduction for the guy who's going to argue for a strong federal role. <laughs> Um, and, and I think has some implications for choice. Uh, first of all, I already apologized to my fellow um, panelists. I've got a significantly injured shoulder, so I can't raise my left arm much higher than that, which good thing it's a Cato event might not matter that I need my left arm. But um, <laughs> any sort of grimacing or unpleasant looks or whatever have nothing to do with what's being said, just how I'm feeling right now. Uh, no pain pills as of yet. But... Uh, A couple of quick words about our commission and what we did. Uh, The commission on No Child Left Behind was formed to get at what was being said about the law at the time. 
Uh, it was being blamed for everything, including outbreaks of head lice in schools, uh, which made the front page of the Wall Street Journal. That was one of my favorite stories. Uh, apparently, the uh, pressure to show up for tests was causing students <coughs> with uh, head lice to show up at school when they should have stayed home. Uh, and NCLB was to blame for that. And also being talked about as perfect, that we got all the answers right, and NCLB is just what we need. We don't need to do anything else from there. Uh, the commission went out to, to talk to people, conduct hearings, figure out what was going on out there, look at research, and, and try and find where the answer was between there, to look at the strengths and the weaknesses of the law and uh, make recommendations for improving it. Um, the commission was co-chaired by Tommy Thompson, uh, former governor and secretary of Health and Human Services, and no stranger to school choice, uh, certainly. A uh, fan of school choice. We had some, some good discussions about that within the commission. Uh, and Roy Barnes, former governor of Georgia, who is a national leader on, I guess, what Saul would call the, the incentivist approach to teacher reform, uh, and a very, very uh, good spokesman on that. Um, my role in the debate, as I see it, is to, or in the discussion, as I see it, is to talk about NCLB's um, potential for serving the ends of both, again, what Saul called the instructivists and the incentivists. Uh, I would argue that uh, both approaches are, are absolutely important, I think has been said a, a couple times up here as well. We need standards-based reform, and we need curriculum reform, and we need choice. Uh, and I guess I would add a third ist to the instructivist and the, the uh, incentivist that uh, I would describe us as dataists. One of, the, one of the great advantages of NCLB and one of the great that's uh, a potential of NCLB to, to force even more reform is the data that's being put out there, that, that uh, parents are being empowered with information on school performance, that uh, principals uh, have more information about uh, how teachers are performing and the potential to have much more, which I'll talk about in the uh, improvements we recommend for NCLB, that there's consequences for failure. This is a big change in federal education policy, uh, and it's actually forced to, to take action when there's failure. Now, one of the things uh, the commission found was that NCLB was a lot better at identifying struggle than addressing the problems. That's one of the things I think we need to fix going forward, get better at going forward. Uh, and it comes with choices for kids that are, struck, that are stuck in uh, schools that continue to struggle. All, all very important pieces, important shifts, and important that federal education policy, after 30 years of being focused on compliance, actually looked at results as an end, looked at getting data out there on real performance, getting the truth out there about all children, and that children couldn't remain invisible in state uh, and local accountability systems anymore because we're going to count them all, and we're going to divide, divide them up in groups and count them all. And there's been some progress uh, as a result of NCLB. Uh, all categories of students are scoring better in fourth and eighth grade reading and math. Not enough better. It's slow progress. Um, the highest rates of gains have been among the students who have typically struggled in uh, state accountability systems uh, that are making those bigger gains. The, the achievement gap in fourth grade reading between black students and white students is the smallest it's been since 1992. Um, Richmond was mentioned up here. We had the superintendent from Richmond at a recent event that the commission did, uh, and she talked a lot about the reforms they, they had undertaken in Richmond and the progress they've made excellent progress. And one of the things that she talked about was how important NCLB was as an arrow in her quiver to have the force of pressure behind what she was trying to do there. And it, it called, called the hands of those that typically stand against that kind of movement, those kinds of reforms. Um, NCLB didn't give us all the answers 
first time around. No law does. No law is perfect. Uh, but it's led us to the right questions, we would argue. Uh, we're actually fighting about data, what the data tells us, standards. Are the standards sufficient? Are they, are they uh, high quality enough? Do we need to raise the, 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 the bar and expectations? Those kinds of debates are the right kind of debates that we need to have. But as our, our report makes clear, NCLB needs significant improvement, significant improvement, and we made a number of recommendations for that. And I guess I would just couch my conclusions about what NCLB has to say about choice and reform uh, going forward in saying that it's our vision for NCLB, an improved NCLB that we think that that uh, could produce these things. Um, first, with regard to accountability, again, that focus on results for all children, huge step forward. We need to get more precise and more sophisticated about how we measure progress and start measuring student progress year to year of individual students rather than a, than a snapshot at one time. Because there's a lot of schools out there that are making great great gains with students that start further behind. They ought to get credit for that. That's a victory. Um, however, there are those that sort of argue that um, any sort of forward movement is progress. We don't feel that way. It has to be progress to proficiency, uh, and, and we need to, uh, to have an end there uh, as we push that. Um, standards. It's essential to get this right. Uh, if we go through and teachers do and students do and parents do and everyone does all that NCLB asks of them, uh, and at the end of the day, students aren't prepared for success after high school, after graduation, whether that's higher ed or, or, or join, joining the working world, then there's no point to the exercise. Um, standards uh, are, and it's not just us that have, have argued this, are too low in most states. I mean, there are, there are some shining examples out there. Massachusetts is one uh, where the expectations are higher. But there's too many states out there where you see um, 70, 80 percent of their students seen as proficient on their state tests, and then you look at the NAEP results and you see 20, 30, 40. Uh, that gap is significant and meaningful, and there needs to be a way. We recommend ways. There's other recommendations out there, ways to, to, uh, to raise the expectations we have in standards. And, again, critical to get that right. Um, teacher quality. NCLB was right in focusing on teacher quality. It's shot at the wrong target. Uh, NCLB looked at teacher qualifications and teacher certifications as, as being the important measures in teacher quality. Commission would argue we need to scrap that, look at focusing on effectiveness, teacher effectiveness in the classroom. As we move toward more sophisticated data and measures of student progress, that's going to give us data on individual teachers and what's going on in the classroom. We've got to use that data. We've got principals need to use that data uh, to, to target professional development to teachers' needs. Right now we spend uh, federally about $3 billion on professional development every year. It's wasted. Uh, one of the most consistent things the commission heard as we traveled was professional development is a waste of teachers' time. Um, we need to use the data to target the kind of help teachers need to improve. Uh, one can imagine as we move forward with that data, the implications that that has on, te on teacher pay and, and other incentive, incentivous approaches to improving teacher quality if we're looking at data and classroom improvement and actually getting them the help they need, uh, coaching up those that can be. Um, student options. Um, this is a part of NCLB that, that I would argue that the choice world is undervalued quite a lot. Um, and NCLB hasn't implemented very well, or hasn't been implemented very well by the locals at all. 
Um, NCLB comes with a promise, and that promise says that if our schools are struggling, we have help for you now. Uh, that could be a choice of another public school. That could be uh, tutoring services provided by private companies, nonprofits, others. That promise hasn't been kept. Less than 1% of the stu eligible students have gotten their school choice. Less than 20% have been able to take advantage of, of supplemental education services, free tutoring that's available. That's a big deal. If we can get that well implemented, and we've had have a number of recommendations for, for, for doing that better. That's the potential of a million and a half parents making decisions about their children's education uh, with sacred federal dollars, which I, I would argue is a, is a big deal as well, and, and directing that money to private providers that meet their children's needs. That's a big deal for the choice world and, and, and I think has been undervalued and, and not embraced as a significant reform. That ought to be pushed. We ought to have more of that. Um, see, my, my, time, my time is getting short here, so let me just figure out what's, what makes sense to jump ahead. Just um, a common criticism we hear about NCLB and the commission's recommendations is that we'd be better off returning to local control. Uh, and that's actually just that's the more effective way to run schools. They're closer to the children, all the rest. Um, I would argue that local control, and, and I know John has as well, local control as it exists now is a local monopoly. Um, local control as this sort of myth in our heads um, that that's, that's the sort of the closer to the children make, making those decisions as a good thing is, is misunderstood. Local control, in my mind, is parent control, uh, driven by parents making choices uh, based on quality and money following children to programs of choice. That's not the world we live in, and we're not going to live in that world anytime soon in any, in any large scale. Um, so I, I think it's important to have a strong federal role as a trust-busting role to those local monopolies to, again, empower parents with data and, and, and begin to move choices and create, uh, as I would put it, not the commission, as I would put it, driving the, uh, creating the pressure uh, that's driving the demand for choice by getting uh, real truthful data on uh, student performance out there. I'll wrap up and leave the rest for discussion, but uh, thank you. Well, thanks again for uh, coming, everyone. It's great to uh, see you all here for this event. Um, I'd like to start off by saying I'm a huge fan of standards. Uh, whenever I go out and buy a new lamp for my bedside table, I always look for that little tag on the power cord that says UL listed so that I know it met the standards of underwriters' laboratories for safety. And there is a plethora of education standards that I have high regard for, I think are very useful. Uh, the International Baccalaureate Program, the Advanced Placement Tests and Courses, the ACT, the SAT. These are all great useful standards, and they all have something else in common, which is that they were all developed by the private sector and are pursued voluntarily. Just because standards are a good idea doesn't mean it's necessarily a good idea to have the government mandate them uh, and require them. And in fact, I'd go so far as to say that not only are government-imposed uniform education standards unnecessary, not only are they ineffective, but they're actually harmful. And that if we really want to improve the quality of education available to American families, we need to create real free markets in education to make sure everyone has access to those marketplaces. Now, I'm not saying this for ideological reasons, but for empirical ones. So let's go through some of the data that I've used in order to reach that conclusion, starting with No Child Left Behind. 
No Child Left Behind is, in a sense, a pretty good test of what happens when you ask governments to implement standards to monitor and improve student performance in public schools. We have 50 cases where states were asked to create these standards, and so we can look at the overall impact that those 50 attempts at government standards have created. Sure, there are one or two cases where things have looked pretty good, but let's look at the overall pattern, what you would normally expect to see from government-imposed standards. It's true that NAEP scores have ticked up in a couple of subjects at a couple of grades. But as J. Kyung Lee pointed out in a study for Harvard University, those upticks had started before NCLB was passed. And so it's hard to attribute to NCLB improvements that began before it was passed, unless there's some sort of time warp provision in the bill that I missed. Um, It's also the case that in some of those subjects, the rate of improvement slowed after the passage of NCLB. Not exactly a good sign. And NAEP is only one of three sources we can use for nationally representative data on student performance over time. There's also two international tests that were released last November and early December, the PISA and PEARLS tests, uh, Program on International Student Assessment and the Program on International Reading Literacy Survey. Both of those tests show that across grades and across subjects, student achievement in the United States has either stagnated or declined since NCLB was passed. So overall, the consensus of the effect of these standards on public schools is not very impressive. But that's not entirely addressing the question that I'm most interested in. That's just the effect of government standards on government schools. What I'm saying is that free markets can do a better job than government schools, and in particular, that free markets without government standards imposed on them can do a better job. So how do you answer that question or those questions? You'll see in the handouts that I've collected... The results of every international study I was able to find done over about the last 25 years comparing public and private schools. Um, Looking at these econometric studies, they're all statistical studies, you can find a total of about 103 findings comparing public and private schools. 91 of those are statistically significant, which means we can have some confidence that these are real differences being reported by these studies. Of those 91 significant findings, 82 favor private schooling over public schooling across a host of outcomes, academic achievement, efficiency, parental satisfaction, condition of facilities, and on and on. Now, that's a pretty dramatic difference, uh, 81 to 9, a 9 to 1 ratio favoring private sector provision over public provision. But that's still a somewhat ambiguous um, conclusion. It's still a somewhat ambiguous result because private school doesn't mean the same thing in every country, and sometimes it means different things even within a single country. Uh, in some countries like ours, private schools are almost all paid for directly by parents and are almost all very autonomous. They set their own curricula. They are not subject to government standards for the most part. But in other countries, some of them included in this big international survey uh, of research that I'm reporting in these handouts, In some countries, uh, private schools are funded by the government and have to adhere to government standards and government curricula. So what does private really mean? If you want to know what a free market can do in education, you have to look at studies specifically that address private schools that are funded chiefly by parents and that have considerable autonomy in setting their own curricula and standards and compare those to government schools. And that's what I do in the second figure in my handout which looks at autonomous private schools paid for in part by parents and compares those to government monopoly schools. And what you find is that there are 28 statistically significant findings 
that fall into that category. Of those 28, 27 favor market provision over monopoly provision. Only one goes the other way. And there's only one statistically insignificant finding in this, uh, in this comparison. That's a huge uh, weight of evidence. And not only is it huge, but it's a bigger weight of evidence, three times bigger than the one you get when you just look at private versus public schools, and you include private schools that are heavily regulated by the state. So that is exactly the opposite result you would expect if standards were necessary or helpful. If standards were wonderful, government-imposed standards on private schools were wonderful, you'd expect the unregulated free private schools, uh, and by free I mean autonomous private schools, to not have as big of an advantage over public schools. But they have a bigger advantage, a more consistent advantage, despite their lack of regulation. So, or rather, because, I would argue, of their lack of regulation. So this is what the evidence shows. But Saul has a good point, um, and John has a good point. None of the school choice programs in the United States today have created free markets in education. So we don't have much domestic evidence on this point. And it's hard to pass real free market reforms. So why don't we, as John pointed out, if you do more of something else, you have to do less of what you're doing now. Why don't we redirect some of our energies towards government standards? Well, my first answer to that question is that it doesn't work. Um, that's what the results of the NAEP, out, uh, NAEP outcomes that I discussed uh, show. That's what the international evidence of freer markets producing better results shows. Standards don't, on the whole, improve things educationally, particularly not in free market settings. But there's a more fundamental reason not to give up or not to redirect our energies elsewhere, which is just that some of the most important battles we've ever fought, policy and political battles, military battles in, in our nation's history over the past century, all of these battles have been difficult. Um, we didn't end slavery or get women to vote or uh, overcome fascism in the 20th century because they were just easy and we just decided, well, hey, let's just dispense with these things. Um, no, those victories were hard. And if the people who were leading those fights just gave up or redirected their energies elsewhere, well, why don't I just try and improve, um, you know, the way my neighborhood grocery store works instead of fighting these, you know, really difficult battles, uh, we, we wouldn't have won any of those victories. Um, so it's hard, but the trick is not minding that it's hard, uh, to paraphrase T.E. Lawrence. Um, Another point is that the idea that universal standards, universal uniform government standards are the best way of serving kids is nonsense. Um, kids are not all uniform. If you say that the best way to serve kids is to put them all on essentially a conveyor belt that pulls them through their educational career at the same pace in every subject, that when you're 11, you should be studying this, and when you're 12, you should be studying that, it's completely disconnected with the fact that kids are very different from one another. It's not only the case that some kids are really bright and they'll excel and, and whatever pace is set by some official government standards will be too slow and will waste their time, or that conversely, slow kids will be left behind and will flounder as a result of these standards that are too fast for them. But even individual kids can be quick study in math and behind or slow in reading and writing and history. No one set of standards is going to be perfect for every kid. Markets have a solution to this, which is not to impose um, a single age-based grading system or set of standards. When you, when you see markets in education and, for instance, the tutoring industry, you see that they group students based on their performance in each particular subject. And when they've mastered a particular set of subject matter, they move on to the next more difficult uh, subject. That's the kind of flexible system, standard-driven system, 
that can really help kids. Um, I see that I'm nearly running out of time here, and so I'll, uh, I'll just wrap up with that. But basically, uh, the evidence doesn't support standards overall as, um, as a great way forward for American education. Yes, there are some bright spots, and, and like John and, and Saul, I hope that they continue. Um, but historically, they haven't tended to last. Um, what happened to Jaime Escalante, who had that fantastic calculus program at Garfield High in the 80s? They made the movie about him, Stand and Deliver. He was pushed out. First, he was demoted from head of the math department to being just another teacher there, and he was eventually pushed out of the system. That's what happens to excellent people in the public schools. That's what happens when people create great standards. Over time, they just end up burning out. Um, there's a teacher at a uh, private school, a tutoring school in South Korea, who made $2 million in 2006 as salary. And he did that because in order to keep him and attract other teachers like him, his tutoring firm gives profit sharing, has a profit sharing deal with his teachers. So they bring in, or they, or they get to take home a portion of the revenue they bring into the company. And he's an incredibly good teacher. They sell his lessons, videos over the internet for a reasonable price, and he's hugely popular. That's the kind of standards that markets drive up. So thanks very much. Look forward to your questions. Well, thanks to all of the panelists. This has been very interesting, and I'm sure the people have a lot, a lot to ask about. I'm just going to throw out one quick question and ask each of the panelists to respond in uh, really briefly, you know, 30, 45 seconds, and then we'll turn it over to audience questions. Uh, my question is this. Uh, since we're at the Cato Institute, I thought I would propose a thought experiment. And uh, notwithstanding what, what, uh, what Andrew has just said, uh, what I would wonder about is this. What if we were to establish national standards, if I can utter those words here, and national standards not like those found in, in an NCLB, but true national standards set at the national level, the federal level, that are uniform, so you no longer have this problem of, you know, states that claim they have 80% proficiency, but it turns out, whoops, on NAEP, they only have 25% basic skills, that sort of thing. Uh, and at the same time, you have a kind of radical um, change in uh, what's available at the, at the local level in terms of schooling options, and that one could imagine that including some mix of choice within the public system, expanded availability of charters, and also school vouchers for those who wanted them. Um, would that bargain be acceptable to each of you as a, uh, as a compromise in this debate that we're having this morning? Why don't we start over uh, with you? Uh, I don't have any objection to that in the short term as a way of providing information, which I think is the strength of the current federal approach. At least it's put some sunshine onto the failings that we have and the degree to which schools are not up to, to where they should be. So I, I wouldn't oppose that as a, as a grading system to create data, but not as a grading system to create stakes for, for actions being taken, which then has other negative effects. So, so transparency, but no, uh, but no consequences. No consequences through the government. Okay. Uh, well, my first observation would just be that looking at how state standard state standards under NCLB have worked, um, there's no reason to think that the imposition of federal standards would be any better. Uh, and so I think the market without the standards, based on the international research, looks like a better way to go. I would also point out that the federal constitution doesn't mention education or schools and empowers the federal government with no authority whatsoever to be determining what goes on in our classrooms. And therefore, just on constitutional principle, uh, I would be completely against that. Okay. So? <clears throat> um, 
you made me an offer I can't refuse. I accept the deal. First of all, uh, I do believe in national standards. I would say the single best thing we could do towards achieving that is to, make the, is to substitute the NAEP test for all the uh, 50 different uh, state tests. The NAEP tests are considered a gold standard. They're based on a consistent uh, and, you know, uh, uh, a, an apolitical process. It's run by a board that's, uh, the, uh, that's not subject to the pressures of legislatures. Uh, uh, and uh, I would point out, uh, contrary to Andrew and his examples of private schools, the single best score of, the, of all the countries, the, single, the, the, the nation that scores the top of all the international tests that he pointed to is Finland, which has national standards uh, a uniform cur- and a uniform curriculum and absolutely zero choice. I'm not ju- jumping to any conclusions about that. There are a lot of unique explanations, but there it is. Uh, in terms of the other side of the uh, of the deal, yes, I'm in favor of uh, a maximal uh, parental choice. I tell some of my friends in the teacher unions that they ought to uh, stop trying to block this. That the re- you know it won't be the end of the republic if parents have more choice in education. We probably every single parent in this room has enjoyed, uh, you know, looking out, has probably enjoyed uh, a, a great deal of choice. And I think we ought to bring some more of that choice to. Uh, to uh, underprivileged kids and uh, and and uh, families living in uh, the inner city, so I certainly would accept. Okay, Gary. Uh, yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> I, I would take that deal, assuming the standards are strong, the expectations are sufficient. Uh, since it's likely that in a scenario like that, uh, you'd have schools of choice, but most of the students probably still in what's the traditional public school system. I would keep the uh, consequences. Uh, for continued failure, uh, maybe a lighter hand on on telling schools exactly what they had to do to address the problem, but they had to, and they had a time frame, and they had to uh, actually make make efforts to turn those things the uh, failure around. Okay, well, thank you very much. And now uh, we have about twenty minutes for questions, so uh, I'd encourage people to uh, raise their hands. The only thing I would ask is that uh, I really don't want statements or speeches. Please make sure that you have a question, and we'll start with the gentleman in the second row. And please tell us who you are. And there's also a microphone coming around. David Dulles, anti-poverty lawyer. What is the impact of pupil poverty, pupil poverty on the success or lack of success of the various voucher programs? Um, I'll I'll address that. Um, The U.S. data is pretty limited, and U.S. voucher programs don't really create market forces, uh, as John has pointed out. So if we want to know whether... if we want to know how free market policies, real free market policies, would serve low-income families, that's not a good place to look. But there are good places to look. Uh, there's a researcher named James Tooley who's been studying public and private schools serving the poorest people on earth in countries all over Africa, in China, and in India. And uh, Cato published a paper of his in December of 2005. He's been published elsewhere in academic journals. And his finding is that consistently across countries, parent-funded schools in the slums of Kibera, Kenya, and Hyderabad in India, parent-funded private schools serving destitute families in these slum areas are outperforming the public schools, which spend three or four times as much per pupil. Um, And these parents themselves are often illiterate, have very little formal education themselves, but are able to choose wisely for their kids based on uh, research by Thule and research by a number of other people in uh, similar countries and in similar settings, uh, which is included, uh, some of those studies are included in the uh, bibliography I have in my handout. 
Uh, I think Saul Stern would like to say something, too. Yeah, I, I think you raised, uh, you know, one of the key questions in all of education debate. I'm presently in an, uh, you know, in an exchange with Richard Rothstein uh, on Cato Unbound, and Rothstein is probably the leading uh, proponent in the country is a, you know, a, a, a good scholar and, you know, and uh, he's quite brilliant. And he makes a strong argument that, uh, that poverty in, a, in, you know, the poverty effect is almost immutable, that you can't expect schools to uh, really raise uh, student achievement for kids who come from inner city neighborhoods uh, where, where uh, you know, where there, there, there's poor health care, uh, lousy housing, that they bring these deficits into the schools, and we ought to stop, you know, the the the, the uh, choice people ought to, and the uh, market reform people ought to stop beating up on the teachers in the public schools because, uh, you know, no one can turn this around unless we basically, you know, Rothstein has his own utopia. He wants a European-style welfare state, and then we're going to have education improvement. The whole point of vouchers, the whole point of the voucher experiment was to find another way of finding uh, to, to get out of this trap, uh, and, and it was based on the argument that in the proper setting, particularly inner-city Catholic schools, uh, that have been found to do, you know, to do a better job with uh, uh, low-income kids, uh, you were going to get this improvement. So that, that's the heart, you, you, that's the crux of the debate. Okay, uh, the gentleman uh, with the beard right there on the aisle. I'm Rick Nelson. I taught for 30 years. The only person who's really brought any data about American schools today is Mr. Stern. And Mr. Stern's data shows that in Richmond, not by doing standards, but by, by essentially doing the Reading First program two years ahead of anybody else, they managed to close the gap so that black students in Richmond in high-poverty districts are way ahead of Fairfax County. And according to the data, black students in math in fifth grade are scoring almost as high as white students in Fairfax County. Those are remarkable gains. I'm a Virginia teacher. I know Richmond has now went from the bottom 5% of the state to the top 40% in just three years after doing a program like Reading First. We know how to get districts to do programs like Reading First. We insist that they use their money what's, for good What's programs. your question, please? Where's the evidence from the choice people that in America there's a plan that works anywhere near as good as what Richmond did? Uh, I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know what the entrepreneurs are going to do, and I, different entrepreneurs are going to do different things. And I don't think it's up to us to tell them which program to use or to, to guess which program will work best for the children that each individual entrepreneur chooses to address with whatever type of school that they propose. Andrew's presented evidence that shows that entrepreneurs do tend to pick effective programs for the students that enroll in those programs, and that matching educators' abilities to students that are engaged by those particular subjects and or pedagogies seems to work pretty well. I would just add that PISA and Pearl's tests, while I didn't include them in the handout, show that American students on the whole have declined in their performance in science and math since NCLB was introduced and have stagnated in reading. So that's data on American students, and that's what happens with standards overall. What you're doing by pointing to one district is cherry-picking. It's possible in any system which has 50 million kids and 15,000 districts to find one that works well. It doesn't mean it's a good system. So, Andrew, you, well, think, it's, you think Richmond versus Fairfax is just an outlier? That they're now, aren't it's you, definitely an outlier. Well, aren't you curious as to what, uh, you know, what instructional reforms might have produced 
uh, this extraordinary achievement? I, I am very much so, yes. And I, I'm curious as to whether it will be sustained or replicated. That's been uh, a problem over time. Yeah, that's, all, that's the argument constantly I hear from the school choice people. You know, there may have been a, a miracle in Massachusetts, but the government that did it can be changed because we have a democracy. And, in fact, that there is a danger that it that will happen with the new governor, uh, D. Val Patrick. Uh, so that, sh- that shouldn't be an argument for you to stay out of this struggle. It should be an argument for you to, with all your resources here, to get into the struggle to make sure those changes don't come about. And by the way, the, don't you also believe that all our school choice experiments, what they are out there in, in Washington, D.C., and, and, and uh, Milwaukee and Ohio, Ohio, are also always at risk uh, for a new governor, a new party taking over and, uh, and disappearing on us. School choice also is, uh, uh, is created by government, and the governments change. So if you ask me to help support the uh, school choice in Milwaukee, uh, you know, sign a petition against a new governor that wants to uh, wipe it out. I'll well, it's let's, created by. Let's do the same in Massachusetts. I think well, Gary wants to jump in first, and then we'll. It's go back. created by government after it was first taken away. That's right, <laughs> uh, Gary. <laughs> this discussion, to me, I mean, is, is sort of symptomatic of the education reform movement, and then all four people up here. I mean, reformers in the sense that we believe that significant change, not limited to more money to do the same things is needed, right? And I think we, we are too small and too underpowered as a movement to sort of divide too much against ourselves on, on some of this stuff. But the, the education reform movement to me seems like uh, related to baseball. I'm more comfortable in those kinds of terms. Always sitting around waiting for the three-run homer, you know? It's, it's that big thing. We're going to convert to a market. We're going to do all those things. But we're not going to move the runners along and manufacture runs and sort of do the little things that it takes to get there and, and actually create the pressure to, to, to create that market. I mean, I think we need all of these tools, and I think we need to, to, to be um, Can I follow that? Uh, maybe enlarge our vision a little bit to look at all of the things that move us in that direction. Okay. But following that baseball analogy, what, what's been going on to some extent is taking all the big husky guys out of the lineup making sure that, that nobody can hit the ball out of the infield. No. And, and I would just point out that it's true, getting real free market policies passed, something that yeah. within a year would create a free market in education, almost impossible. Right. But that doesn't mean it's impossible to pass programs now. And, in fact, there are already some programs in place now that if they simply expand over time can create market forces down the road. And I'm thinking of scholarship donation tax credit programs like they have in Florida and Pennsylvania and Arizona. In Florida, they're currently, the legislature right now is debating tripling the size of the cap on the amount of money that can be donated for these scholarships that serve poor kids. Basically, businesses can make a donation to a scholarship fund. The scholarship fund subsidizes tuition at private schools for poor children. The program currently serves 20,000 kids. It's doubled in size in, in the past three years. Uh, They want to now triple it over the next five years. That'll bring it to 60,000 kids, which will be more low-income kids than are being served by all the voucher programs in existence in the U.S. combined. But but, but, but here's here's the thing. Uh, You need the big husky guys in the lineup minus the human growth hormone. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And that's part of it. But you got to do other things to make sure there's people on base when when they hit the big ball. I mean, I think your arguments, choice arguments, our arguments are strengthened when there's a standards-based system 
that is making it clear out there what the truth is about what's happening. Oh, in I, the like I, I like We've that. We've got to have that as part of it, or or the sort of yeah. uh, esoteric market arguments are never going to sell unless there's a real demand out there for choice and a real understanding of why it's needed so badly. Why in in in, in schools that continually fail, where parents look at that and say, "These are our kids that continue to fail," and I don't want to hear another five-year plan to fix them. That's the kind of thing that I think standards-based education reform pushes. One of two things happens. Either we, we, we succeed and we improve the schools in a significant numbers of area, and where we don't, there's a larger demand for the kinds of things you're talking about. Let's move on to some questions. The gentleman on the aisle right here. That's you, right in front, please. Innovation Foundation. You know, I, my own experience of this is anecdotal from my own experience with my son going through the failed system of Montgomery County, Maryland. A joke. And uh, I remember him, we were in, I think, the top five, one of the top five elementary schools in the state of Maryland. I remember the principal coming in and saying, my goal is to move us up in our test scores every single year. And I was like, top five's pretty good to me. I don't really need you to do that. But what she did and what I've seen in Montgomery County is largely a focus on teaching to the test. And so my son's English assignments throughout the years have largely been brain dead and focused on how do you read a passage so that you can take a short passage and write it back in a way that will get you a high score on the test. And as a result, I think my son is just you know, not very happy in the schools. So that's obviously a personal experience. My question, though, is why, why doesn't it make more sense to have just a pass-fail grade on, the, on these scores? Because I think what, this, what I saw my son's schools doing is the teachers basically moving away from curricula and pedagogy that they enjoyed and loved to try to keep raising the test scores up and up and up, when, frankly, they were good enough where it was. It seemed to me if you had a pass-fail system, you'd get the people who are not very good at all move up, but then you wouldn't sort of force this sort of bizarre change in good curriculum to, to meet the test. Um, maybe that's a good one for Gary? Yeah. Um, resist the urge to say teach to the test if you have a good test. Um, <laughs> if you're in a top five school, that's great. And obviously good things are happening beforehand. But um, this idea that NCLB has caused the narrowing of the con- curriculum and teaching to the test sort of seems to have this assumption behind it that before NCLB, um, there was this rich teaching of, of broad curriculum, and we were just getting it right, and we kind of had this, this uh, utopia of good teaching and learning going on. Then C- NCLB comes along and narrows it. That's not what's happening for most of the kids out there. Um, that's not what's been happening. And, you know, you need, uh, I would argue, some sort of, of, of measure at the end of the day that says this isn't the only things kids have learned, but at least they've gotten this. I mean, kids, certainly you don't, you don't envision standards-based reform as kids on a conveyor belt. I've got four of my own, all under nine. I mean, this is present to me as well, and they're all very different. But I want to know, I want to measure I can trust at the end of the day that says the school they're in is doing its job. Uh, and, and with my own, my own kids, of course I wouldn't expect them to learn only what the standards require, but I want to know their schools are providing that. Well, mm-hmm. But those creative projects that last three weeks, and all, and all of those, those, those can be good things, but they're useless if, if we can't also measure at some point that students are learning what they need to learn, too. Um, I, I, 
I think it's a false divide to say, well, I can't teach creatively because at the end of the day, you have to measure whether or not I, my students have learned anything. Let's um, go to somebody in the back. The lady on the aisle in the far, far back there. I'm Anna Bryson. I'm a trustee at Capistrano Unified School District. We have 51,000 students, and a lot of them do not speak English when they come into our system. Can you please tell me why you would think or how you would defend not having no child left behind when we need to make sure the children can speak English and they can read when they graduate? And this is how we're able to quantify. How would you say it is not to the benefit of those Spanish-speaking students? No, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't okay. understand the question. Go ahead. Uh, markets ensure quality because parents want what's best for their kids, and when they have the opportunity to shop around and compare different educational options, they make better decisions for their own children than state authorities who set standards for public schools make on their behalf. That's what the international evidence that I cited in my handout actually shows. So... Parents don't want their children to remain illiterate. They want their children to go on and be higher achievers than they were themselves. And the international evidence comparing different ways of running schools finds that when parents have choice and schools have to compete for the privilege of serving their kids, they do a better job of teaching them. Well, let me add something to that. Indeed, not only does that make better choices for their own kids, but I would argue for other kids as well. And that is because in any market, you have some active consumers and some passive consumers, and it's the active consumers that raise the bar and define the quality that everybody benefits from. I would argue that that system does better for other people's kids than a government official deciding what's best based on whatever information that they have at hand. Okay, um, Larry, please. I'm Larry Feinberg, and I'm on the staff of the National Assessment Governing Board, but this is not a naive question. <laughs> uh, I just wondered about charter schools, that there's a lot of discussion here about vouchers, but as best I know, there are many, many more children in the charter schools, millions, and I just wondered maybe different members of the panel might comment about what impact the charter schools have had, and what does that say uh, about the effectiveness of markets or standards? Yeah, I uh, believe, uh, I mean, just to put a number on that, I, I hope I'm not misremembering this, but I believe the number of kids in charter schools nationwide is approximately equivalent to the population of the New York City schools. So it's About a million, yes. So About a million, yeah. A large number. I would argue that as configured, that chartered schools or systems of them are not that telling of what a market would do in action because there are two sets of price controls, and even in the, even in the most uh, open or strong charter state, Arizona, Michigan, uh, there's still significant limitations on who can open a charter, and they have two masters, uh, the state or their sponsor and, and, the, and the consumer. Now, that having been said, I think that's the, that's the shortest route that we have available to us today, the charter route, with some reforms to getting closer to a market. If we could, if we could change some of the stronger laws to where they would allow uh, selective admissions according to mission of the charter school, that would facilitate uh, specialization. And the next thing that I would urge would be to have the charter operators have the right to ask for permission to charge tuition because at the moment what we have is a situation where the price cap set by the government prohibits some schools and it overpays others. Uh, I, I think the, uh, the evidence on charter schools is uh, quite mixed. Uh, 
I'm in favor of charter schools. I, I'm against any caps. But what I'm in favor of is a very stringent process for uh, filtering out, making sure that uh, fly-by-night operations don't get, uh, you know, don't get funded. And I'm against uh, uh, just throwing the money at any any group of operators that comes along and, want, and wants a charter. And I'm in favor of really enforcing the terms of the charter, which, are, which is that if you don't fulfill your contract and improve kids' scores or show that you're doing a good job, you get closed down. Unfortunately, what has happened uh, is that, uh, that, 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 you know, that's not, that, you know, uh, those closings don't, don't usually happen. Uh, the charter schools stay, and it's very difficult. Political pressures are brought. Again, government is involved. Uh, there's no, you know, there's no, there's no exit from government. I'm, you know, sorry about all the dreaming about we're going to have, you know, a complete exit from government involvement. But in the charter school system, the government often makes bad decisions about which schools to charter and, you know, and, and not closing bad charter schools. Let me add something real quick. quick. There's also very little strong evidence, again, that charter schools have had a, competi- a really strong competitive effect on the existing public schools. Just two quick things. First of all, the government doesn't throw money at charter schools. Only parents do if they think it's better, even if it isn't very good, than their alternatives. So the fact that some of these charter schools stay open means that some parents, or the ones that take their kids there, think that it's better than the alternative, even though the alternative is typically better funded. I think it's unfortunate if we, you know, we go so far for parental choice. But let's not romanticize that parents are always making these great decisions. And let's not romanticize that if somehow we didn't have no child left behind, the teachers in Montgomery County would be making great decisions on their own about creative approaches to curriculum. Most of those teachers are trained in our ed schools, and they're indoctrinated with the idea that teachers don't count at all, that the, the, the governing idea in the ed schools is that teachers should be a guide on the side rather than a sage on the stage. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, you know, let, let's not laissez-faire go that far. Well, that we just remove, question. especially if there's a lot, there's a lot of science now in, in, in instruction, you know, and what, what are the best instructional methods, and I think we ought to try to uh, make sure that those, are, those methodologies are used. Okay, I think that if people talk fast, and we get very quick answers. We can probably do two more questions. So uh, let's go again to the back, the gentleman on the, on the aisle. Hi, my name is Tom Dunn. Um, I want to, first of all, I have a master's in education from Rutgers. I want to agree with what uh, Mr. Stern just said about indoctrination um, being taught. And second, with the closing of inner city Catholic schools, uh, has there any, been any uh, analysis done moving away from where a lot of the schools that are closing are run by the local diocese to the new uh, where the new systems where the Jesuits are tramp are uh, are starting with like the Cristo Rey uh, high schools where you go to school for four days a week and the fifth day you have a co-op program where uh, the company you work for actually pays part of your tuition and the nativity uh, system of schools where they're not, the schools are not run by the diocese but instead they're sponsored by a religious order and the students. The parents don't actually pay any tuition at all, but the, they're subsidized through scholarships. Thank you. I'd suggest you read the uh, new Fordham Foundation study, which uh, deals with a lot of these attempts to uh, innovate and try to uh, market Catholic schools so that uh, we, we, they can overcome this, this uh, demographic and financial crisis. Okay, and then a question from the lady on the side here, and then uh, I'm going to ask everyone to just give one very brief sort of parting comment. 
Ma'am, I'm, yes. I'm just concerned because we're out of time. If there's, yes, yes. My question is, what do the panelists think that this, I believe, is increasingly fragmented approach to education in America will have on the, the effect it will have on the fabric of our society? One of the roles that the public school system has served is to integrate us as a people. And, and given the diversity of our society, I believe that that's a necessary uh, role Good question. Well, can we have a quick answer here, and then we'll go to some closing? Yeah. Uh, oh, let me just uh, let, let me plug Neil's uh, book, or is it a book or a policy analysis? Why we fight. Uh, everybody in here should read that as an answer to that, because it shows that that a uniform system created through politics creates conflict and doesn't have the melting pot effect that theoretically it was supposed to have. Yeah, I, that that was oh. going to be my main answer as well, actually. Uh, just in general, historically, I found the same thing that Neil found in contemporary American life, that systems in which parents get to choose the kind of schools that will serve their kids and in which they're not compelled to pay for education that they find morally objectionable for one reason or another, those kinds of systems let people live and let live and get along in a much more harmonious way than in a single official system that has to be funded by absolutely everyone and can have only one official dogma on any particular subject. That kind of one official system causes people to fight over what's taught in the official public schools. Uh, and we have a lot more, uh, a lot better record on social issues in the private sector historically and in the U.S. Uh, today. The public schools in this country actually did a fabulous job up to at least the mid-half mid of the past century in inculcating to all the new immigrants a sense of the common, a, a common culture, a common uh, civic understanding of what the country is all about. Uh, that's no longer the case. And unfortunately, the public schools now are major fragmentizers. And that's because the wrong people have gotten control of the ed schools, the multiculturalists, and the balkanizers, and uh, the victimologists who think that the purpose of public schools are to, uh, to indoctrinate students in, uh, in, in multiculturalism and not in uh, uh, a, a, the, the common American values. All right. Well, we've had some, uh, some great thoughts on instructivism and incentivism and uh, a lot in between. And I'd just like to quickly have everybody give a parting uh, comment if you care to. Let me just address quickly the ed schools thing that Saul pointed out. He's right. That's going to be a drag on whatever we do for a long time. You have the incumbent teachers out there. But one of the reasons that a system of choice, depending on how it's configured, might change that is because the operators of schools would no longer be so cavalier about hiring these people and would find alternatives, maybe not from ed schools but elsewhere. And if parents would want to enroll their children there, that those options would continue to grow. But as it stands now, there's no incentive for the people in the system in any wholesale way to take their business elsewhere. And as a result, these... 
I'm not sure what to call them exactly in a public audience, but uh, these situations which are just incredible, what what goes on in these ed schools uh, have every reason to just continue as they always have been for some time. Uh, I would just point out that, yes, there are some great examples of successful public schools, public school districts. There are states that do better than others. And if we want excellence to be consistently and routinely identified, perpetuated, promoted, reproduced elsewhere. We need a system of incentives that makes that the natural course of affairs. And that's what free markets do in education as in every other field, gives incentives to do a better job of serving your customers. uh, And that's why I'm recommending markets. Well, we all agree that the ed schools are terrible. But take a look. The ed schools are a perfect example of a free market system. No, they're not. They're 1,500. No, they're not. They're 1,500 ed schools in America. They compete with each other for faculty and for students on products and price. There is no regulation. Uh, It's an example of the power of ideology and of bad ideas. And that's what's happened. And, and uh, we ought to at least agree to fight, to fight that and make sure the ed schools do reflect what, what parents actually do want for their kids. And finally, Gary? Agree on that part. Um, I'm going to avoid the ed school question leave that to, to, to you guys. Well, well said. Um, I, I guess I just want to leave with this thought that we need both of these things, the instructivist side and the incentivist side, with all of its part, to work together. Uh, we need to remain data-driven. And I just, but to the education reform world, I mean, um, Andrew with his examples, I mean, ending slavery was hard. Winning the wars we've won was hard. Uh, but there was no one perfect answer that made those happen. It was a series of a lot of good things that happened and, and good answers that that we brought into that equation to bring those good ends about. And I think we ought to take the same approach to uh, changing the dynamic in public education. All right. I'd like to thank our panelists.